Thank you, Chad, and the rest of the worship team. If you have your Bible, I encourage you to turn with me to the book of Acts. We're going to be in the 26th chapter. We are getting close, church family, towards the end of our study. We've been at it for almost or over a year at this point now. Acts chapter 26, and we'll be looking at the entire chapter here this evening. I just want to reflect back on that song that we just finished singing. Love the chorus of that song. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. You see here tonight, every one of us in this room, we have a story. What's your story? Why are you here? What's brought you here? Some of us, I know some of your story and why you are here and why you continue here. But each and every one of us in this room tonight, we have a story. But the greater question that we need to ask has, has your story intersected with Jesus's story? With Jesus's life? Because that's really the critical question. That's the most important story, the story of Jesus. And tonight we will see once again from the book of Acts, an example of one's life who intersected with the life and story of Jesus. And it's changed the trajectory of his life and the story of his life. And that's what Jesus ultimately wants to do. He wants to change the trajectory of our life, the destiny of our life. You see, apart from Christ, we are destined to be separated from him in a literal place called hell. But when our life intersects with Christ, when Christ intervenes by his grace and by his mercy that we just finished singing about, he he changes our trajectory. He he changes our destiny. He, He changes everything about our life, including our story. He doesn't wipe our story away completely. He just makes it whole. You see, our our story is incomplete, truthfully, without Jesus. Jesus is what brings meaning to our story. Jesus is what helps make sense of our story. Even in confusing and chaotic and crazy situations, like we'll see in our text here this evening, For you see, once Jesus' story intersects with our story and becomes his story, we become something called a witness. And this is what we're going to talk about this evening, the anatomy of a gospel witness. If you've been with us since the beginning of our study of the book of Acts, one of the central verses in this book is found in the first chapter in verse 8. Jesus speaking some of his last words to his disciples as they are gathered around him. And he says this to them, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. 
In this verse, Jesus tells his disciples that you are going to be my witnesses. Being a witness is one of the, again, central themes of the book of Acts. And what the book of Acts does for us is it informs us that we too are witnesses. I think we all know that if you've been in the church for any length or period of time, you know we are to be a witness. It's what the church has been set apart to do, to be light, to be salt in this dark and decaying world. We are to be a witness, and most of us know that. But the good thing about the book of Acts as we look through it is it describes for us how to be a witness, how to walk it out. You see, the book of Acts, I believe, also not only wants to inform us of what it means to be a witness, but it wants to transform us into a literal witness. And this is possible because of the power of God's spirit in the life of the believer. Friend, if you're in Christ, you are a witness. What does it mean to be a witness? In the Bible, a witness is someone who sees something amazing or important. And when this person begins to share what they've seen, what they've heard, what they've experienced, it's known as bearing witness. And friends, this is the task. This is the responsibility of the Christian to bear witness to what we've seen, to what we've heard, and what we've experienced. And we're to share this with others. And for the Christian, being a witness should be something that comes natural to us, especially since we have heard it, seen it, and experienced the amazing grace of God through Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Right? Just in the natural, in this, in the natural realm, this is a, a, just as a person, being a witness is something that comes natural. When we see something amazing, something astounding, even something scandalous, we want to share it. We want to gossip about it, or we want to take a picture of it or a video of it, and we, we send it to our friends. We, we post it on social media when we see things. That is an example somewhat of being a witness. Again, when we are a witness, we've seen it, we've perhaps heard it, we've experienced it, and we think it's pretty important We think it's pretty amazing, and so we want to share it. Friends, what's more amazing, and I'm speaking specifically to the Christian, what's more amazing than experiencing the grace and mercy and love of God? Is there anything more? Do we believe that? We we say amen. We say, yes, Lord, But let me ask you a question. If we truly believe that this is the most amazing thing that we've ever seen, experienced, and heard, then why does it seem sometimes so unnatural to share? Why does it seem, why are we so awkward at doing it? And friends, I believe that I can give a general answer and I can give a specific answer. Generally speaking, it comes down to this. We are just disobedient. 
There's no way to make that sound good, and I'm not trying to. And I'm saying this to myself as well. It's not that I have arrived, I have a long way to go. But friends, when I don't tell, when I don't share, when I drift, it's a me problem. It's not somebody else's fault, it's my fault. There's disobedience. But friends, I'm not here to shame anyone. I'm here to proclaim to you and to remind you that you are a witness. You have the capability of being a faithful witness because of God's spirit in you. But another reason more specifically would be a lack of discipleship. Remember Jesus's last words to his disciples in Matthew 28? Hey, he says to teach them all things. It's important as God's people, as a church, that we teach fellow Christians that you are a witness. That you are part of God's plan. Really, you are the plan for other people to see, hear, and experience the great love and mercy of Christ. Now, God does the heavy lifting. God does the saving. But he expects us to do the speaking to open our mouths and to tell. And this evening, we will see an example for us, a front row seat, a discipleship opportunity, a a learning experience, if you will, as we once again look at the life of the Apostle Paul, who I believe to be a faithful witness. And we'll observe Paul from a similar surrounding in prison or in chains, This time stating his case before King Agrippa. If you remember last week, Paul was in prison uh, for two years. uh, Thanks to Felix. Uh, And then after Felix, Festus came to power. And Festus, he was trying to make sense of what to do with Paul. Because Paul had found himself in trouble. Not of his own doing, but before for being faithful to the gospel and people were not happy with Paul's message. It offended, not because it was wrong or off base, but because it was true. And it was exposing something that was off in the hearts of many people. So much so that they wanted Paul dead. And so Festus is trying to get to the bottom of it. And where we last left off Festus, like those before him, could see no reason as to why Paul was in the predicament that he was in. He had done nothing wrong. And he even says this to Agrippa. And King Agrippa, at the end of chapter 26, he takes, or chapter 25, he takes keen interest and is curious about this man and wants to hear from him himself. And so here in chapter 26, we get to see the account of Paul in his interaction of being a faithful witness to King Agrippa. And as we work through this text this evening, uh, I want us to keep this big idea in mind, that we are a gospel witness with our words and way of life. That we are a gospel witness with our words and with our way of life. And we'll see this to be true in the life of Paul and his conversation and his exchange with King Agrippa. We'll see this and how Paul carries himself 
in this conversation, his character, his conduct, how he treats King Agrippa. We'll, we'll also see this in the content of Paul's interaction in his conversation. There's some pretty important content that is necessary in order for the Christian to be a faithful witness to God. But lastly, we'll see that Paul is very calculated or very deliberate about why he's doing what he's doing. He's very, very clear. There's no guesswork to be done with the apostle Paul and why he's been put here on earth and what he's trying to do. And I hope and pray that it would challenge us, that it would give us confidence to move forward in being a faithful witness ourselves. And so like we do most weeks, I want to read to you chapter six in its entirety. Uh, It's 32 verses. So please hear God's word as I read it. And then I'll share with you several observations from this text. Acts chapter 26, beginning in verse one. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate, that is, before you, King Agrippa, I'm going to make my defense today against all those accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and the controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time if they are willing to testify according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope and the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I'm accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises from the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when when they put to death, I cast my vote against them. I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme in raging fury against them. I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with authority and the commission of the chief priests. And at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me for those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Is it hard for you to kink against the goads? Verse 15, and I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things to which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to who I'm sending you to open their eyes so they might return away from the darkness to the light and the power of Satan to God 
that they may receive the forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, throughout the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I've had help that comes from God, and so that I stand here to testify both small and great, say nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And he was saying these things in, a, in his defense, and Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning has driven you out of your mind. That Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king rose and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Again, the big idea to keep in mind, we are a gospel witness with our words and with our life. And so what I want to do with the time that we have left is I want to just make some observations from this exchange that Paul is having with King Agrippa. And again, we're going to first see this. We're going to see the the interaction within Paul's conversation with King Agrippa in verses one through three. And most notably, what I want you to see here is how Paul carries himself in this conversation, how he conducts himself. Now, in order to do that and help you understand why I'm saying this, I want us to understand whom Paul is talking to. He is talking to Herod. Now, if you know anything about the scripture, there are a lot of Herods in the Bible. This one in Acts chapter 26 is King Herod Agrippa II. Who was King Herod Agrippa II? He was the grandson of Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the one in Matthew chapter 2 that was having all the babies, male babies killed under the age of two because he was paranoid about losing his throne. Uh, Then there is Herod Antipatus that we read about in Mark chapter six. He was the king during the ministries of John the Baptist and of Jesus. Antipatus actually had John executed in Mark six and later declined the opportunity to pass judgment on Jesus and sent him back to Pilate, right? 
So that's Herod Antipodus. And then uh, if we look uh, to Acts chapter 12, we see Agrippa's dad, King Herod Agrippa I. We read about him in Acts chapter 12. In Acts chapter 12, we know that he is well known for uh, executing James. And it was really a political maneuver. And he intended to execute Peter as well. But Peter was miraculously rescued from prison in the middle of the night. So you you begin to see, or it comes into better, clearer understanding of this family tree and lineage. This is a bunch of scoundrels, a bunch of guys that are just not good guys. And King Herod Agrippa, he follows suit. Uh, King Agrippa, he lived with Bernice, who herself was of the Herodian line, being the daughter of King Herod Agrippa I. Yes, I said that right. Agrippa and his sister were together. And I don't mean just his siblings. I mean his close companions. And I'll let you guys, you know, I'm not going to go any further. Yeah, this tells you the kind of individual this man was. Again, he was not a moral man. He was not role model material. His integrity, as far as his character and integrity goes, not somebody you would trust, not somebody you would aspire to. You wouldn't say he was a good dude. And so when you think about Agrippa II, who was called this meeting with the Apostle Paul, these two men could not be more different at this juncture in their life, right? King Agrippa, he lived for the sake of himself. But Paul, he lived for the sake of Christ. Yet in spite of their differences, I want you to see just quickly here how Paul interacts with him. Though at this juncture in their life, Paul is completely different than Agrippa. There was a time and period in Paul's life where he was very similar. Not in the same ways as King Agrippa, but Paul himself had not always been this man. As we read throughout, even in chapter 26, once Paul was known as Saul, a persecutor of the church. The a terrorist, if you will, to the early church. And yet, by this point in the story, he is now a testifier of the risen Christ. How does one go from being a terrorist, wreaking havoc upon the early church, to bring a proponent of it, an advocate of it, a proclaimer of it? Well, this is what Paul is getting ready to do. And I want you to see a couple of things about this interaction because I think it's key for us to understand that if we're going to be a faithful gospel witness, God calls us as Christians to people without Christ, right? That's pretty elementary. This is what we've been put here to do. And what God has done for Paul, though this man is immoral, he is wicked, 
Paul is right where he needs to be. And Paul can relate to this man because he once was this man. And so what does Paul do? We, we see one, Paul is grateful for this opportunity. Look at what it says in verse two. I consider myself fortunate, right? Let's think about where Paul has been. He's been in jail, prison for two years. And yet he says he is fortunate to be before King Agrippa. Now, Paul is not buttering King Agrippa up. He's not telling King Agrippa what he wants to hear and so he can get his way. What we'll see here, I believe that Paul is being wise. He's very, be, being very winsome, very understanding of the situation. He knows what's going on. He knows that King Agrippa has a certain level of influence and of power. And I believe he probably knows of King Agrippa. He knows of this family lineage. He knows perhaps of the wickedness to some degree. But even if he doesn't, and he doesn't have to, friends, if we don't have Christ, we need to know Christ because he's our only way and hope of salvation. So he's right where he needs to be. And he is grateful for this opportunity. If you just think about what Paul's been going through, he's been constantly interrupted for the last two years, not being able to really plead his case because we know that Felix just wanted to get paid. That's why he kept him there. Festus didn't really know what to do. And Paul just wants to be able to state his case. Well, now King Agrippa is giving him a public platform uh, to really clearly state, and he's excited for it. He's excited to be able to share free, really, of interruption with the exception of Festus blurting out here at the end of the text, to be able to share what's going on and why he's where he's at. Two, we see that Paul acknowledges that King Agrippa is very familiar with customs and the controversies of the Jew, being that he is of Jewish descent to a degree. And so he was a Hellenistic Jew, a Greek-speaking Jew, cultured uh, in Greek culture. And so he had a familiarity with Jewish customs and their controversies. And, th- and then he asked Agrippa for patience as he's getting ready to make his case. You see at the end of verse three, he says, hey, I beg you. He's asking. This is a, a posture of humility. Hey, I'm asking you for patience, please as I get ready to share my story. And what I see here is King Agrippa or Paul, he's being up front with Agrippa and he's showing him a measure of honor and respect. And I think it's important that when we have conversations with people, people that we don't agree with, that we be respectful. Now, when you show respect to somebody or an honor to somebody, it doesn't mean that you agree with them. Because I think we can clearly state that Paul would not agree with anything about Agrippa's life and the choices that he's making. And yet he still shows him respect. He still asks for time to speak. And I think what's happening here, what this affords to Paul, is it gives him, he's building 
I think, a, a bridge, if you will, a relationship to be able to share. Though it'll be a short-lived relationship, he's at least taking the steps and he's building the bridge to be able to communicate his message, which I think is wise. Because the alternative for Paul is to be like, I'm not going to tell this man anything. I don't agree with him. We're not on the same page. We don't believe the same way. We don't live the same way. Why am I going to respect him? Now, if Paul had taken that approach, I don't know what would have happened. We know ultimately that God said that he was going back. He was going to Rome. But why on earth would Paul do this? And why doesn't he do it? Because Paul, he knows what's at stake. The the task that he has been given since Acts chapter 8 was to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. It was predicted uh, to Ananias in Acts chapter 9, I believe, that Paul would take this message to kings. And so here we see a living out of that very prophecy given to Ananias, that Paul would be a mouthpiece of the gospel to people in high places. Here we go. Paul's doing it. I think Paul is also concerned for the state of Agrippa's soul. And friends, that's what we need to believe. We need to remember. Because we can forget as Christians, especially if you've been following Christ for such a long time. We can so isolate and insulate ourselves from the outside world that we forget that God has called us to go and be a light to this world. We're to live in this world. To not be a part of it. It's really a paradox of sorts to understand it. But friends, the world, those without Christ, they have no hope of understanding unless we live before them. Unless we befriend them. Because it creates opportunity. It creates conversation. And how do people come to know God? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. It gives us an avenue. It gives us a platform to speak. So Paul, his exchange with King Agrippa, even though he's not a moral man, Paul remembers undoubtedly what his life was like before Christ. We, he, he shares this with us here in this text. That he was once a man in the dark, blind, passionate about stamping out the way, ending people's lives until Jesus intervened. Again, may we see those without Christ. I think sometimes we see them as the enemy. Right? But we got to remember we were once If you're in Christ, we are all enemies of God. But what did God do for us? What does Romans chapter five, verse eight say? Why we were enemies of God. What did he do? He pursued us. He provided for us his son, Jesus. As a demonstration of his love. And so that we could know him and have fellowship with him and be a part of the family. 
May we not see those without Christ as our enemy. May we see them as somebody to be rescued. And we should understand that better than anyone having been rescued ourselves. We're not better than anyone. We've just been blessed by God's grace and his mercy. And I think this attitude perhaps served Paul well as he's before King Agrippa. He knows what's going on. He knows that God has orchestrated this opportunity. He's already done this, been there and got the t-shirt. So he's just getting another one. And we'll see the same thing happen next week. Secondly, I want us to see the information of Paul's conversation, the content of Paul's message. And this is so important for us and being a faithful witness, which God has called you to be if you're in Christ. You are a witness. And so the content of what we share matters. It should be of great concern to us. And what we see in verses 4 through 26 really is a master class in Paul sharing his testimony to defend his belief in the gospel. And though Paul and what he does is skillfully done, all of this is accomplished by God's spirit sovereignly working in the life of Paul. I want you to keep in mind, and that sometimes this gets lost on us, that Paul has been at this for a while now. He has been serving God faithfully for some time, over a decade. And that kind of gets, time kind of gets lost when we study the Bible sometimes, the way that we're doing it. And we just read, we've been going through the book of Acts in just a year, right? All these events that we're reading about, they take place over a much lengthy amount of time than that. All right, but Paul has been certain, He's been faithfully serving God for some time now. And so he's had a time or two, you know, to develop and to hone this gifting, this skill, if you will, of conveying the information concerning Christ. What I'm trying to tell you is this, because a lot of times people, we don't, are not faithful to be a witness of Christ because we just don't know how to do it. And the only way you're going to know how to do it is to do it, is to go for it. Now, as you go for it, we need to have the right information. And this is what we're going to see here. But friends, the only way we get better at something is if we do it, right? You're not going to knock it out of the park the first time. And if you do, it's dumb luck, Right? That's not how it's going to be. You're not going to nail it the first time. But God doesn't need you to nail it and get everything right. He needs you to be submitted and to trust him. Because even when we fall short, even when we seemingly mess everything up, God is bigger than our mess ups and our, uh, our imperfections or our not being as skillful with the English language or anything like that, God can still work 
And that's a good, that's good news. And so what we see here from Paul is he gives us really a template that we can follow, that we can use. And this is nothing new under the sun. If you've been in church for a long time, uh, we see really three parts to Paul's story. In verses four through seven or four through 11, we see his life before Jesus. And then the second part of the story, verses 12 through 15, we see his conversion to Christ. We see this change happen in Paul's life. Paul went from being one thing and living one way to living radically and totally different. And what was that difference? It was Christ. And we see this very clearly in verses 12 through 15. And then what we see what happens in verses 16 through 23 is what happens after Christ. Because friends, after Christ, things can be the same. Because if they are the same, I'm telling you, you don't know Jesus. Because there is no way you can know Jesus and continue with the same way that you're living. It can't happen. That's an impossibility. You just have knowledge. But knowledge is intended to inform and transform and change you. And we are changed when we confess and we repent and we turn to trust Christ only. And we do all that because Jesus interacted and interceded first. In verses 4 through 11, Paul speaks here of his upbringing and how his upbringing shaped his life. And I want you to notice what Paul does. Paul doesn't bash the Jews at all. Paul actually uses his Jewish upbringing as a part of his defense. Paul describes his his strict upbringing in Judaism. Then he states this major theme in his speech that his faith is not a violation. His faith in Christ is not a violation of his Jewish heritage. That his faith in Christ, it actually links to the Old Testament promises. Everything that he was taught when he was going through school, that he was learning through the Old Testament, it was all pointing to the Messiah, who Paul knew to be Jesus, but so many Jews did not. And this is what created the controversy, because all Jews, they believed in a Messiah They just didn't agree on who the Messiah was. Jesus didn't fit the mold for many of the Jews of who they thought the Messiah to be. Honestly, they wanted the Messiah to to fit their realm of living, to serve them, to overthrow Roman rule, and to reestablish the Davidic throne, and then usher in the kingdom of God because the Jews were God's chosen people. It was all about them. And yes, they are God's chosen people, but God's kingdom is more than the Jew. It's the Gentile. God is inclusive of all people who will put their faith and trust in Christ. No matter their ethnicity. This was shocking news for the Jews. This is why we see so much tension between the Jews and the Gentiles. And this is part of the reason Paul's in prison. 
Because the Jews don't like that Paul has befriended the Gentile and that, 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 that the Gentiles aren't having it to become Jews and that they could come to Christ without partaking in circumcision and understanding everything that the Jews understood and had to go through. This is why they're mad at Paul. Paul says, but look, I'm not here to, de- to de- deny my Jewishness. I, my faith is rooted in what the Jews believe. We just differ when it comes to who we believe the Messiah to be. Because Jews both believed in a resurrection. And, and so he, 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 he's not trying to talk down on the Jews. In, in fact, he speaks highly of them to a certain degree. In fact, it was my upbringing that was helpful. It was putting me in a right place to believe. That's what Paul's saying. Kids, let me tell you something. This is just a little side note. I know as you get older, sometimes you're like, why are my parents taking me to church? Why are we having a family devotion? Why are we praying before meals or when we're driving to to church or praying at all. Man, you need to thank God for that. That is God's grace to you. God is putting you in a place where you can hear, where you can know God. But listen, I get it. I understand it because I have a human heart just like you. Sometimes we don't want to hear it. Sometimes we don't want to do it. But it's God's grace to you that he's put you in a family that believes that puts you in a place where you can hear. Because kids, just because you show up at church doesn't mean you know Jesus. It's a good starting place. But it takes more than showing up to church, than saying a prayer before a meal, than knowing Bible verses, than knowing catechisms, all good things. These are all things that Paul knew. I mean, Paul... Man, he was the bee's knees when it comes to Jews. I mean, he was the, man, if you wanted a kid, you wanted him to grow up to be like Paul. I mean, he was well-respected in society. He went to the greatest school. He learned under the greatest teachers. Man, and he was devout when it came to protected Judaism, which is what we see, is we see how this, Paul's life was about this. But your life can be about all these things. You can give all these external evidences of being about Jesus and not know him. Paul is an example for us all. Paul knew the law, studied the law, was passionate about the law, but he did not know Jesus. And we see this in verses 12 through 15. In fact, we see Paul's passion is leading him to put more people in prison. But it says at midday, a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shone around him and brought him to his knees. And that light was the glory of Jesus Christ himself. It wasn't like one day Paul had an epiphany and he suddenly discovered that he was going the wrong way. The only reason he knew 
He was deceived, that he was going the wrong way, that he was dead in his sin. It was because Jesus intervened. Jesus stopped him in his tracks and set him straight. He was like, hey, what are you doing, Saul? Why are you persecuting me? Is it hard for you to kick against the goads? What does that even mean? A goad was a tool, is a wooden stick with a piece of iron on the end of it. And it was used to poke the, the bull or the oxen to keep, to steer them in the right direction. But if you know anything about bull or oxen, or they can be stubborn. And if they were stubborn against their master, the master would stab the bull harder in order to get them to go in the right way. So it's not very profitable for the bull or for the oxen to fight against the master who has this goad. This is not going to work out well. And this is what God, this is what Jesus is telling Paul, hey, it's not going to turn out well if you fight against me. Right? But we do this today. We have opportunities. God is goading us. He is prodding us all the time. He sends circumstances in our life to wake us up. He sends people into our lives to deliver truth to us. Sometimes things that we don't want to hear. Perhaps if you've been here any length of time, there's probably something that I've said that you've not agreed with. And hopefully it's because I've been faithful to God's word and I'm not just being offensive. But if you stay here sooner or later, you'll hear something that may rub you the wrong way. And friends, that's because that's what the Bible does. It'll rub you the wrong way, and it's intended to, because the Bible in and of itself, when it's faithfully proclaimed, is offensive. Because it tells us that we're not as great as we think we are. It tells us that we need help. It tells us that we're in a dire situation. It tells us that there is something intrinsically wrong with us, that there's this thing that's a part of us, that's who we are, that we're sinners. And it doesn't matter how many good things you do, how much money you give to nonprofit organizations, how many people you help across the street, or you say a kind word to, or you tip well at a restaurant. Those are good things, but those good things will not cover your sin. The only thing that will cover your sin is the blood of Jesus who died upon the cross and rose again. And this is who appears before Paul on the road to Damascus and shows Paul the air of his way. He intervenes for him. Jesus shows up, speaks up, saves, and then he separates Paul to do this work. Paul is now in a position to be a witness. He has seen it. He has heard it. He's experienced it. And because of that, he's ready to be set apart to be a witness. 
And this is the only way that you can be a witness for God. You must first know Christ. You cannot be his witness and be faithful without knowing Christ. It is a prerequisite for being able to be a witness. And we see in verses 16 through 23 that Paul was commissioned to take this gospel to the end of the earth. So this is what Paul's saying. Paul's like, he, he goes through his story, his upbringing, his conversion, his commission, that he serves this Jesus that everybody would have knew about because it's not too far removed from Jesus living on the earth and the, the stories of him rising from the dead and the disciples and all the stories that were along with that. They would have been familiar with that. Agrippa certainly would have been familiar with that of being of Jewish descent to a degree. And so when he's getting ready to wrap up his story, Festus blurts out. And this is where I want us to see Paul's intentions in this conversation, verses 24 through 32. As Paul begins to finish at the end of verse 23, where we're told that there's an interruption And as he was saying these things in his defense, it sounds like Paul is still talking. Festus just says, you are a madman. You are out of your mind. You have studied so much. You don't know what's true. Have you ever like studied so much that you just get confused, right? If you're a student, you're just like, man, my head hurts. Festus is basically just telling Paul, Paul, you have studied so much, you don't even know what's right anymore. You're crazy. He says, you're out of your mind. And then Paul quickly says, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. Now, again, we see Paul's restraint here. We see the respect that he's even showing to Festus. Festus has just told him he's a madman, that he's crazy. And yet Paul shows restraint. Paul shows humility. He's wise. And he says, hey, I'm not mad, Festus. I'm speaking true and rational words. And I think, friends, this is a great reminder of the foolishness of the message of the gospel of Jesus. Right? It does seem foolish to those who don't believe. Right? If you don't believe the truths, the, the claims of the gospel, I mean, it's foolish. But when the light goes on in your mind and in your heart and in your being, and you understand what the gospel is proclaiming, that we as people are deserving of God's wrath and of separation from him forever because of our sin, but there is a way to escape that. And there's a way to enjoy fellowship with God for eternity. The, the scripture says to the perishing, man, it's good news. Once you realize you're perishing, once you realize you're in trouble. Man, until we realize in trouble, we think life is great. 
I just, just think of it this way. All of us, for, we, we, from the way we see it right now, we're all sitting here a clean, a clean bill of health. We have no idea that anything's wrong with us. We think we're great. Then you go to the doctor and they just do a health checkup, a scan. You could have something pop up or show up on the scan and suddenly they tell you you have something terminal. Well, just yesterday you felt great. Now that news has been delivered to you. Hey, you are in trouble. But the good news is there's something that we can do about it. You can take this medicine or you can have this surgery. And there might be a chance, but there's no, we don't, that's not how we operate as Christians. It's more than a chance. We have a hope. When the gospel reveals the trouble that plagues us, that's terminal. We have a hope. We know and we count on that. We trust in them. That hope is Christ. That's the thought it was crazy what Paul was saying. And then Paul turns his attention to Agrippa. And he's so pointed. And we see this his intentions of why the scene has happened. Man, he's, he wants to speak clearly to Agrippa. He says, Hey, Agrippa, what do you believe? I perceive that you believe the prophets, that you know about them. And I, and I think it seems like Agrippa becomes keen on what Paul is doing. And we see this exchange that Agrippa has. He says, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? It's almost a comment of arrogance and of pride. Really, Paul, you think you're going to convince me? I mean, from Agrippa's standpoint, he's the king. He's in charge. Paul, you're in chains. Maybe you are crazy. But then Paul says this, verse 20. Uh, he further states his intentions. Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also those who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Paul makes his intentions clear why he's saying what he's saying because he wants people to know he wants people to believe and as we leave here this evening i want us to keep these couple of things in mind quickly one as we look at paul's life may we too in our relationships and in our conversations may we show be courteous and may we be courageous in our gospel conversations and God uses relationships to spread the gospel. So show people respect. Show them courtesy. Build those relationship bridges for gospel sharing. Friends, whereas if we forget who we once were, we can burn those relational bridges with smugness or self-righteousness. If we forget who we are apart from Christ, Remember where we came from. Remember our roots. Remember our origins. Remember our beginning. But then remember Christ's story and how he's changed us. That makes us gracious. Friends, be prepared through prayer. Just as Paul prayed in verse 29, that we should intercede for the soul and for the sake of others. And I encourage you, we have this uh, how to pray for the lost sheep back on our prayer table. It's got a, a list of different verses that you can pray through and use 
and a space for you to put people's names on that you want to pray for who are without Christ. And lastly, keep Christ the centerpiece in the main character of your gospel conversation. Make sure Christ gets the spotlight, gets the shine more so even than your past and your testimony. Your, your past is a part of your story, but it's not the saving part. The, the saving part belongs to Jesus, and may we give him the time and shine that he so deserves, because he is the one who saves. Let's pray. God, thank you for this day, for this time. Please help us to be faithful and respond to you as you speak to us. God, you are good. Thank you for your living word. Help us, Lord. Help us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you're here this evening and you want to know what it means to follow Christ, or if you have prayer concerns of any kind, we have people uh, to my left and to your right who will be over in the prayer room that you can pray with. Uh, You can totally speak to me or speak with somebody that you've came with. But friends, if you don't know who Jesus is, or if you want to know what it means to follow Jesus truly, uh, talk to somebody this evening. Uh, If you're here this evening with Christ, praise God. Pray that you've been encouraged and challenged by this message to grow in being a faithful witness. Perhaps maybe you want to understand more so what it means, how to be a faithful witness. Talk about that this week in community group. Just share with your group, share with your church family, hey, this is an area I want to grow in. Pray with me. Come alongside me. Help me. We'll put resources in your hand. We'll encourage you. That's what we want to do. We want to equip you. We want to encourage you to be a faithful witness. So I, I encourage you here this evening, church, just to respond to God as he speaks to you.